Today's passage comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. Not to hype it up, but this is the perfect message for today, <laughs> okay? The perfect message. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 14 says this, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised a day of small things shall rejoice and, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and, he, and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we're going through a short series as we kind of close out the end of the summer and get ready for this new ministry year. And the way, uh, what we're talking about is this topic of renewal. And the way we've been approaching this topic of renewal, whether it's personal and individual spiritual renewal, whether it's renewal as a, as a church, or even whether it's renewal as New York City, uh, the way we're going about this is we're looking at a very specific time in the period of the life of Israel, which is known as the post-exilic era. The post-exilic era was a time where, you know, the Jews, they were uh, held in captivity. They were exiled out of their land, out of Jerusalem. They were kicked out under the Babylonian Empire. For 70 years, after 70 years, the Persian Empire comes in. King Cyrus says it offers a decree. He says, uh, you exiled Jews, you are now allowed to come back to Jerusalem and to build this temple. And Second Chronicles tells us that the reason why King Cyrus did that is, is very interesting. King Cyrus is not a, a believer, uh, at least in that kind of context. King Cyrus did that because God stirred his heart to do so. God stirred his heart to do so. So interestingly, God didn't necessarily use a, a Jewish person or a Jewish ruler as a catalyst for renewal but he actually used the Persian king to be a catalyst for, for renewal during those times. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this vision from the book of uh, Zechariah. And Zechariah is a kind of a difficult book to read and to understand. There's eight visions in the first six chapters alone of this book, and we're going to look at the fifth vision out of the eight visions. And uh, what, what's going on here is after the exiles come back and they lay the foundation of the temple, they run into some opposition. Uh, some people who live there, they say, Right, perhaps Samaritans, and they say, we want to join you in building this temple, and the Jews say, no, right, you, you, you can't join us, and so they get upset, and they get mad, and they try to do everything that they can to disrupt this building project. They bribe government rulers and government leaders, and so the project comes to a halt, and there's two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who kind of rise during this time and give their prophecy to kind of exhort and encourage the people to continue and to finish building up this temple, now, <coughs> I think what's, uh, what's interesting about uh, Zechariah, you know, one of the commentaries I read 
says this, you know, if Haggai was the builder and if he was the one that's responsible for building the solid structure of the temple, Zechariah is more like the artist. Uh, he is adding a colorful window with symbolism and, and light. And if you've ever read through Zechariah, you kind of know what he means because uh, the book of Zechariah, it's told in like pictures. Uh, maybe if you're an artist, you appreciate it, but uh, it communicates in visions and pictures as perhaps even an artist would communicate. And I think what's funny that even in our passage, you know, if we're like, I don't get what the vision is saying, uh, Zechariah himself doesn't really get what the vision is saying as well because you look at verse 5 and the angel asks Zechariah, do you know what these are? And he says, no, my Lord. Uh, and at the end, uh, Zechariah asks, what are these two branches that I see? And the angel says, you don't know? And Zechariah says, no, my Lord. So even Zechariah in this passage doesn't really understand the significance of what he is seeing. But I think once we understand uh, the meaning of this vision, it actually ends up becoming a very powerful and encouraging passage for us. Now, before we look at this vision, let's start with what's clear. And so let's start with verse 6 because it is a clear word to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor, and essentially he is the man in charge of uh, rebuilding this temple. And the word to Zerubbabel is this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Now, there's two points in there that we are going to unpack, and I think as we do, we'll, we'll, it'll, we'll see how it connects to this picture or to this vision that Zechariah sees. So first point, not by might nor by power. God's work is not done through might or power. What does it mean when it says that? You know, what's interesting here, I think, is depending upon who you are, this could actually be an encouraging thing or it can be a discouraging thing. You know, if you're somebody who feels very weak or defeated in life, if, you, if you're somebody who feels very small and insignificant and maybe uh, a little bit helpless, like Zerubbabel probably felt in this period, then you probably actually find this statement to be really encouraging because you're saying, I don't have might and I don't have power, but the encouragement is it's by God's spirit ultimately. But if you are actually a person who has a lot of power, a lot of might, maybe a lot of influence, a lot of ability, then maybe you don't find this to be as encouraging. Uh, maybe you even find it to be a little bit discouraging because it means this, that ultimately what you do, ultimately your might, your strength, your talents, your ability, your gifts is not what is necessary to do the work of God. I think our default mode is to maybe uh, relish in our personal successes and our personal achievements. And our default mode is not to really... Uh, acknowledge or want to be in positions of weakness. Now, why? Well, what is weakness? Weakness is this understanding that we are finite people, that we are limited people, that we are ultimately dependent people. It's knowing that apart from the strength or the achievement of another, that we are in a position of helplessness. And I think this goes against the kind of culture that prizes things like self-reliance and self-dependence. And that's why, you know, you think about it, the gospel resonates in places where people feel helpless and people feel weak and people feel broken and that's also why the the message of the gospel probably seems irrelevant in cultures where people feel strong and people feel powerful and in control of their lives i.e. some a place like new york city but god's pattern is actually to always work through weakness think about it god chose israel israel to be a conduit of his redemption to the world why not because they were strong, but quite the opposite. Deuteronomy says that God chose Israel because they were the fewest in number. 
Who did Jesus call to be his disciples? Was it kings? Was it emperors? No, he called fishermen. He called tax collectors. What are the great examples of faith in the gospel narratives? Was it not the, the blind and the lame and the poor? Who would be one of the great missionaries to the Gentile world? Was it not Paul who had a thorn in his side? Paul saying, only to hear God say, right? Uh, Paul saying, why is a thorn in my side, Lord? God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. To which Paul responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, the pattern that we see in the Bible is not that God works through strength, but that God works through weakness. Not that God's will is accomplished through human means and human power, but it's actually accomplished by human dependency and human weakness. Now, uh, we're not comfortable with that, I think, right? If anything, we want to hide our weakness. Uh, I don't know the last time you went in a job interview, but, you know, when you go to a job interview, maybe one of the common questions, I don't know if people ask this now, but people used to say, uh, so tell me a little bit about your weaknesses, right? What do we say? We don't say this. We don't say, well, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit lazy. Sometimes I'm unmotivated. Uh, sometimes I just don't get along with people. Uh, sometimes I'm just a little bit too passive aggressive and I don't really say what's on my mind. Sometimes I'm just a little bit slow in getting my work done. Have you ever gone into a job interview and, and really said any of those things? Probably not, right? We probably say things like, my weakness is I, I just work too hard, right? I don't know when to stop. Uh, I'm too much of a perfectionist. I just love everything to be perfect. Uh, I just put too much pressure on myself to, to do a good job. And we, we say these things, right? We try to come up with creative ways to actually not reveal our weakness, but creative ways to highlight things that we are good in, uh, highlight our strength. If you were going to interview Zerubbabel for this temple project, I wonder how he would answer. Zerubbabel, why should I hire you to lead this project of rebuilding the temple? He might say this, well, I come from a family of civic leaders. My grandfather was a king, King Jehoiakim. I'm good at organization. I know how to get things done. Maybe he would say that. <coughs> but here's what I think the right answer would be. Well, my father was a king, but you know what? He, he only reigned for three months, and ultimately he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That was Jehoiakim. My lineage probably isn't a point of strength. You know, I started this project and I laid the foundation for the temple, but I couldn't finish it. There was opposition, and I kind of gave up. Uh, I couldn't really get people to buy into the project at that point. I'm not actually sure why you should hire me because I feel very helpless and discouraged right now. And you would never expect to hear anybody answer that in an interview. But it's an honest answer, and this is the point in which Zerubbabel is. But here is the amazing thing, that it puts Zerubbabel in the perfect position to actually experience the power of God. Because oftentimes, we most experience his power when we are in a position of weakness. You know, one of the obstacles, I think, of understanding the Christian faith, at least on an existential level, is coming to terms with the reality of our weakness. Some people think being a Christian means that you have to have everything in order, that your life has to be together. Maybe being a Christian means you have to kind of have this acceptable level of morality. And I know that because some people say, well, I, I can't come to church yet because I'm not enough, a good enough person to, to come to church. 
And uh, perhaps even in a, a, a church like ours, right, we might, especially on a day like today, <laughs> we might say, well, we're, we're, we're kind of small. We're, we're insignificant. Uh, you know, if that's how we think and if that's how we feel, then we don't really understand the central message of the Christian faith. You see, because I- in the central message of the Christian faith, it says this, that Jesus, he came into the world, and one of the reasons that he was misunderstood was because people expected him to come with a certain level of strength and might and power. They wanted a Messiah who would be this mighty political figure who could come and lead Israel, overcome Rome, and say, Israel is going to be a great nation again. Israel is going to be a great kingdom again. That is what they were expecting out of their Messiah, out of their Christ. The last thing that they probably expected was their Messiah to come in as a humble servant, riding on a donkey, ultimately to be crucified upon a cross. That would not compute. That would make no sense to people in those days. But you see what God did in the person of Jesus Christ is he took on weakness And by doing so, he identified with our weakness. And by becoming weak, he ultimately demonstrated his power to overcome sin and death because in his weakness, in his submission to death upon a cross, sin and death were overcome. The very victory of Christianity, the very victory of Jesus Christ is rooted in the fact that God himself became like one of us and became weak like one of us. And therefore we ask, why should the work of God be any different today? Not by might, nor by power. Second point is this, God's work is done by his spirit. Now this second work I think is going to require a little bit more deeper theological reflection and some imagination. And the reason why I say it's going to require some imagination is because we're going to have to try to visualize what Zechariah is seeing here. Now think about it. He, he sees this golden lampstand with a bowl on top, and there are these seven, I guess, little lamps around it. Uh, the Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. Maybe you've heard that word before, especially if you've had Jewish friends. And there are these two olive trees next to the lampstand, and they're continually pouring oil into the bowl. In those days, wax wasn't used to keep uh, a lamp lit, but they would use oil. The oil would sit in a bowl soaking the wicks, and, uh, and the lampstand remained lit because of the oil. So the oil is the one that's giving the lampstand the power or ability to remain lit. Now, what does all that mean? I think there's actually several levels of meaning here, but uh, on one level, the lampstand, it signifies the role that the temple would have in terms of the place of God's presence. And the two olive trees are probably the, the two, or they are the two anointed ones, which probably refer to Zerubbabel and Joshua, who was the high priest. But I think what's more interesting here is uh, when we take a step further and take a step deeper and look at the vision here in relationship to all of Scripture. Because this vision has a lot to say about the church. Now, where do I get that? Well, in the book of Revelation, which we're going to study this fall, uh, Revelation has a lot of imagery that, uh, it, that borrows a lot from the visionary of Zechariah. <coughs> so, for example, there's a picture of seven lampstands in the book of Revelation Uh, which represent the seven churches in Asia Minor. So the lampstand imagery is actually a picture of what God intends the church to be. And in the physical temple, the lampstand, it would be located between uh, the altar and the mercy seat, which is uh, where the ark sat, which represented the very presence of God. It would light the passageway to the, the Holy of Holies. And 
uh, in a sense, the lampstand was a way to illuminate the way to the throne of grace, right? If you can visualize that, that's what the light is doing. It's illuminating the way to the throne of grace, to the very presence of God. How appropriate, then, is it that in the book of Revelation, it would use the same imagery to convey what the church is meant to be and meant to do. The call of the church as a lampstand is to illuminate the way to the throne of grace through the preaching of the gospel by showing that Christ himself is the one who died upon the altar of the cross. Uh, think about what a lamp does. You know, a lamp shines light. Uh, if you've ever been to maybe a sporting event or a football game or a concert, uh, you've seen really bright lights, and the purpose of these lights are to, right, to shine on the game. Uh, the purpose of these lights are to shine on maybe the, the concert or what's going on on stage. You don't go to these venues or to these places to actually marvel at the light, right? The light has a very specific purpose. You know what it means that the church is a lampstand? It, it, the church exists to, to shine the light on something uh, outside of itself. The church exists to shine the light on Jesus Christ because <clears throat> there's nothing glorious about the church in and of itself. Uh, <clears throat> if, you're, if you're visiting us for the first time, uh, there's probably not much to look at here. Right? We're in a dance studio. There's these like funky mirrors <laughs> behind me, uh, especially on a day like Labor Day. Right? There's a lot of people that are, are away. There's people who are doing roles that, uh, that they're not usually doing. You know, the preacher, nothing special, right? Nothing great to marvel at. We don't have like a fancy uh, concierge center where you can kind of go and see what, what services you can look up. But you know what? Even if we had those things, once you got to know us, you would see flaws. You would see a lot of problems. You would see things that are wrong. Every church has those issues. But guess what? We don't exist to shine the light upon ourselves. We're not here to say, hey, we're so great and marvelous and so glorious. Every church, every church exists to be a lampstand and to say, Christ is glorious. Christ is the one who is worthy. That's our goal. That's our mission. Shine the light on Christ. Now, here's a question. Uh, how does a church stay lit then? How, how does a church keep that fire, that witnessing fire going? And uh, the encouraging thing is, going back to what Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. You see, it's the, it's the spirit that keeps the fire going. The spirit is like the oil that is being poured out into this bowl that is keeping that wick lit, that is keeping this lampstand burning. And the spirit is why we can say not by might nor by power, but by the spirit of God. It's not through human eloquence. It's not through uh, maybe trendy gimmicks or programs. Uh, it's not through anything like that, but it's ultimately by the Spirit of God. Not by human righteousness, not by human wisdom, not by human ability, not by human talent. Now, as a pastor, that's really encouraging to me. And the reason why that's encouraging to me is because uh, the witness of Christ is not contingent upon my abilities. Ultimately, it's by the Spirit. If you're a believer, I hope that's encouraging to you. And if you're a part of this church, I hope that's encouraging to you. But even if you were not a believer, I, think, I still think that's something that uh, you would like and you would appreciate because it means this. 
whether you come to Christ or not, whether you come to know Christ or not, it's not ultimately dependent upon the righteousness, wisdom, talent, skill, or ability of other believers. Because if it were, uh, we'd probably fail, and it probably wouldn't be great. God may use those things, but at the end of the day, it is the Spirit of God that keeps the church lit. Now, finally, and this is, a, this is the last thing I want to say, I think there's a word here that, uh, that the church needs, that our church needs in particular, because I think it challenges us and it, it encourages us. You know, verse 10 says this, For whoever has despised a day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. A plumb line is uh, basically a, a measuring thing. Uh, now, the returning exiles would have, we probably would have called them realists, right? Because we're saying this, you know, you're only a group of 40,000 people compared to the many, many, many people in this land. You're not very many. Uh, you come back uh, out of exile. You don't have a lot of power. You don't have a lot of influence. Uh, you're very weak. You're very economically broken. You don't have all that much. And now, the progress of building this temple, uh, the progress that you made was just so small and so insignificant. All you did was build the altar and lay the foundation and now you have all these things getting in the way. And the people in the land, they're, they're doing their best to stop you and to make sure that you don't succeed. And so what's the realist mentality? It's to say, this will never get done. Right? We're just too small. We're just too weak. We're just too insignificant. But then God says that those who despise the day of small things will rejoice. Uh, I like how one book put it. Uh, he says, they will be surprised into rejoicing you know it's kind of like when somebody maybe takes a really bad basketball shot and if you're a fan or if you're a coach you're like no 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 don't shoot that no no and then it goes in and you're like, yes yes good shot good shot uh, i think it's kind of like that god is making that promise to these small weak insignificant exiles during this time and they don't see it because their faith is so small but god is making a promise he's saying i'm going to surprise you into rejoicing now, I know that we, uh, we are small, and I hope nobody despises the fact that we are small. I hope nobody underestimates small things. You know, maybe some of us personally and individually, uh, we have these great dreams, and we want to do great things. And maybe even if you're a believer, you have these great dreams of, like, wanting to help and serve and change the city and change the world. Those dreams are great. But I think the message here is also this. Uh, don't despise the small things because small things can add up. You ever think about this? I know, I know it takes great faith to attempt great things for God, right? To dream things that uh, you think maybe are not possible unless God is in it. But have you ever thought it may take as much faith, if not more, to do the small things for God? Because immediately with the small things, we're going to start to think, what's, what's the point is this really going to achieve or do anything? Why should I even bother trying? That's why the temple project was stopped, right? These small exiles, these weak, insignificant exiles, they said, what's the point? Is it even worth trying? But you see, small things can add up into big things, and we may find ourselves surprised into rejoicing. So friends, don't, don't despise something small like lifting up a prayer for someone. 
because God may actually use it to, to change their hearts. Don't despise something small like inviting somebody over for dinner or inviting somebody out to dinner because God may use that to encourage, greatly encourage and make somebody feel welcomed and assured. Don't despise something small like maybe sending an email uh, to somebody who you think is going through a hard time and just giving them a small word of encouragement. It could be the thing that maybe keeps them going at least for that day and persevere. Don't despise something small like reading your Bible, maybe even a chapter, maybe even a verse for the day. It may be the very nourishment that your soul needs to press on in the Christian faith for that very day. You know, I, th I think it takes a lot of faith to do the small things, right? Because in our mind, we're always going to be whispering to ourselves, what is the point? So small and so insignificant. God says here, don't despise the small things because God's spirit works powerfully through small things if only to demonstrate his power through our weakness. Friends, we are a weak people. Uh, we are a weak church. Even if we had a thousand people and we owned a building and all that stuff, we would still be a weak church. Uh, the gospel doesn't go forth because of those things. Uh, God uses those things, but the gospel ultimately goes forth because he gives us a spirit. He gives us a spirit. And because of that, the most important thing we can do is tap into the person of the spirit and the work of the spirit. The most important thing we can probably do is just to be faithful in prayer and in worship and various spiritual disciplines. And the programs that we have and the size that we are, if you think at it from that perspective, it doesn't really matter, right? Because we still share the same spirit, and the same spirit works through his lampstand, keeping us lit. And by the way, uh, we're, I mean, uh, I, I don't think we have a, an issue with, like, being too proud. Uh, but the spirit should also keep us humble and help us to recognize, not us, not by might, not by power, only by the Spirit of God. Let's, uh, let's pray a little bit. And uh, I want to... Maybe I can ask you to just think about maybe some of the small things that you thought were too small to do. And reflect upon those things and maybe ask, have I despised small things? And perhaps ask God to uh, give you the faith to see these small things. Perhaps ask God to give you the faith to see that in spite of your weakness, our weakness, his spirit is here and his spirit is with us. And his spirit is the one that does all the work.